6: Everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cutt. I write
2: about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we're going to look at one of the great psychedelic pop collectives of recent vintage, the Elephant Six bands and record
6: label. We'll talk to musician and producer Robert Schneider about his group, the Apples in Stereo, as well as Nutramilk Hotel and the Olivia Tremor Control.
2: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. So you
5: had better do what you were told.
6: Elvis Costello, Declan McManus, was uh, singing about terrestrial radio, which is (laughs) what people refer to the old AM-FM radio waves. We uh, were busy at South by Southwest, so we did not talk about this story last week, except it is now one of the biggest music news stories of the year. It's going to be going on for months.
2: Internet broadcasters uh, and their careers are in jeopardy as a result of the latest ruling by the Copyright Royalty Board. What is the Copyright Royalty Board? Well, it's a three-member body appointed by congress to set rates uh, for royalties that that internet broadcasters must pay the latest ruling by the copyright royalty board is that these rates will have to increase drastically we're looking at an increase over the next few years that some internet broadcasters are saying is going to be 100 percent to 150 percent higher than they than they have currently been paying these rates will be retroactive to 2006 The rates will take effect in May. Many of these broadcasters are now saying that they can't keep up. They will not be able
6: to pay these new rates. And as a result, they'll be out of business. We're talking both about huge companies. Yahoo has broadcasting online something like Pandora. And the small guy sitting in in his or her basement playing to a couple of listeners some obscure kind of niche music just because they love it.
2: It's a complicated issue, Jim, and one that is going to affect every music fan. Certainly any music fan who listens to this show is going to be interested in this story because Internet radio has become... a a vital outlet for exposing new music the kind of stuff you will not hear on most commercial
6: radio stations around the country today
2: so we sought out perspectives on both sides of this issue
6: we are talking to John Simpson who is the executive director of Sound Exchange John if people don't know what ASCAP or BMI are to collecting royalties for artists over conventional or terrestrial radio Sound Exchange is for the digital world is that a fair summation
1: Well, actually, it's a little different, because ASCAP and BMI collect for songwriters. So on over-the-air radio, the songwriter gets paid, but the performer doesn't.
6: If conventional radio plays Jimi Hendrix covering All Along the Watchtower... Bob Dylan is paid, and Bob Dylan's music publishers are paid via CSAC in his case, one of the, uh, the third rights organization collects. But the Hendrix estate doesn't get any money. So conventional radio pays only the songwriter and the music publisher. Now, here in the digital world, it was established back in 1995 that both the performer and the songwriter get, get paid. So internet radio plays all along the watchtower, and Dylan gets paid, and so does the Hendrix estate. Um right. Is this a case of fundamental fairness, finally, in the digital world? Or is it a case of terrestrial radio getting this deal that digital radio isn't getting? I mean, that's, that seems to be a key part of this argument that's missing in a lot of the conversation about this new uh, royalty rate.
1: I totally agree with you. I, I think it's time that terrestrial over-the-air radio paid. You have a National Association of Broadcasters formed mostly to try to keep ASCAP from collecting too much money from radio stations for, for the songwriters. And they prevented the record companies from actually getting a performance right for many, many years. And I think for a long time there was a sense, you know, in the record companies that they, they were selling records. And well, yeah,
6: that that's the argument. If I play your record, Mr. Artist, on on my radio station, it's good promotion for you, and somebody's going to go buy your recording. But now, isn't can't that argument be flipped and said on the same thing? If we play a song on online radio, uh, isn't it ultimately good for the artist too?
1: I think it. Here's my problem with that whole argument. I, I think for, the, for years, radio got away with that, but I don't know that that's really true. You know, We know that you know
7: hundreds of millions of people listen to radio each
1: week, and yet many recordings struggle to sell 500,000 copies. Again, let's just say though, for example, that you're playing a song, 90% of the audience that, that's listening is not going out and buying. Shouldn't you be paying? It, it, you know, And if you ask those people, why don't you buy more CDs? Well, I hear enough music on the radio. And, and we've seen consumer studies that, that show that.
2: But aren't we talking here about some of these small Internet stations that are appealing to a dedicated listener who isn't finding that kind of music anywhere else on the radio dial, the terrestrial radio certainly, and is seeking out new adventurous music that they would go out and purchase.
1: Well, I, I don't disagree that there's a lot, you know, there's some percentage of people who are at those services that are the people who go out and buy. But, I, you know, I think the issue is, shouldn't those services pay?
2: You know, it, it just still, still seems to me like you're, you're putting out of business a lot of potential future revenue streams for these artists. I can't understand why an artist would object to having their music played as widely as possible. Especially a new artist, somebody who's trying to expose their music. It seems to me like internet radio is the salvation of the new and up and coming artist who can't, doesn't stand a prayer of getting played on commercial radio.
1: You know, the new artist, and, and certainly Sound Exchange, you know, we represent over 20,000 performers, over 2,500 independent labels, as well as the major labels. And we're certainly happy to work with our labels in any way that can help them. You know, so if, a, if an artist says to us, hey, I'd really like to make my music available. at a a special rate, at least for the first three months or six months or whatever the terms are, we're certainly happy to work with them to do that, each performer, can make that decision.
6: Well, thank you. Thank you for for joining us, John. We appreciate it. Well, my pleasure. Thanks so much. All right, let's
2: talk to Jonathan Brook, who is a singer-songwriter and also owns a record label, Bad Dog Records, uh,
6: Bad Dog based in New York, right, Jonathan? Yes, it is. So you were one of uh, the, the sixty or seventy some odd people who went and testified before the Copyright Royalty Board as they were trying to weigh this digital issue. What
7: I was there.
6: What What, what inspired you to go to D.C.,
7: Jonathan? Uh, I just I, I feel like, especially as an independent and as a as a record making you know performer, it galls me that there's so much debate about the content that that creates these business being being paid for. You know, you're building a whole business around my product, my life, my livelihood, and I need to be compensated. And so I wanted to stand up for that.
2: Now, these Internet radio stations arguably are the only outlet for a lot of up-and-coming artists, undiscovered artists, artists who don't stand a prayer of getting their uh, songs played on uh, commercial radio stations, terrestrial radio stations. Right. How do you respond to that?
7: I think yeah that's a you know that's a that's an interesting point but I think that it's so unproven that that internet radio is really making a difference for even established artists you know I, even myself I can't say that I see a difference in my revenue my record sales whatever from internet radio
6: How about old fashioned radio Jonathan do you uh, are you represented by ASCAP or BMI
7: I am represented by ASCAP, yes.
6: Okay, so you get a check every so often from them for songs that are played on terrestrial radio, right? Right. Okay, how about about internet radio? Right now, uh, ASCAP, BMI are still collecting uh, songwriting royalties for internet radio. Have you got any point of comparison between the two? Between
7: SoundExchange and um, ASCAP? I mean, every every quarter, my SoundExchange checks are getting bigger, and it's awesome.
6: Okay, so it's growing. You're seeing it's more growing. revenue. I'm
7: seeing it growing, and it makes you know every little revenue stream is is a big deal.
2: What What about the uh, argument that uh, the per use metric uh, is is really unfair for some of these smaller guys uh, on the internet who really aren't you know reaching a huge audience, aren't really talking about a, a huge advertising stream for themselves, not making a whole lot of money on it. Why not make it uh, sort of a percentage of revenue, kind of an ability to pay sort of system as opposed to this sort of uh you know, this this blanket rate which which could potentially put a lot of these internet stations out of business.
7: Well my understanding is that it's five hundred bucks for each small webcaster per year for your inventory. I mean that's really not a lot of dough. And if you if you can't sell out five hundred bucks, you don't have any business being in business.
6: Well, 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 wait a minute though. You know, the three hundred sixty five dot com is one of the umbrella internet radio stations. They actually have a station which plays nothing but classical music pieces uh, delivered on oboe.
7: Delivered on oboe? Obo oboe,
6: <laughs> oboe music. Only oboe music. Only oboe music. I gotta see Class, that. It's yeah. true. Three hundred sixty five dot com. That that oboe DJ is not gonna <laughs> be able to afford the five hundred bucks and goodbye oboe radio.
7: But the point is for him it's a hobby. Yeah, but so why
6: is he being, uh, you know, charged the same amount the Clear channel going to be can't paid?
7: Why can help me when I need to make a new record and I, I need some more money to make a record, my oboe record? Like no one's handing me any cash. <laughs> like I have to I have to make my business work. I'm not whining about that, and it's hard.
6: But I know you don't want to live in a Starbucks Walmart world. No, and, you know, I don't. I mean the same thing you said. I mean, boo-hoo for the oboe guy if he can't make it as a business. So I'm the big well, chain. I'm the big chain corporate retailer, and uh-huh. I say to you, well, tough luck, Jonathan Brook it's too bad that the independent record stores are going out of business. They, can't, they couldn't make it as a business. Boo-hoo-hoo.
7: Well, I don't, I don't mean to be crass and, and mean about the small business owner, because that's, that's what I am. But I have to say, you know, if, if you're going to make a go of it, then, you know, you've got to pay your dues. It's like the guy at the corner store. If, if he wants to stock milk, he's going to have to pay for it.
6: Thank you, Jonathan Brooke, uh, for, <laughs> for coming on Sound Opinions.
7: Thank you so much.
6: We're going to talk to Bill Goldsmith for the webcaster perspective here. He and his wife, Rebecca, are, are Radio Paradise, right? Is that right, Bill? That is correct. It's
8: just the two of us.
6: Put it in perspective. Uh, you just go on the net and play records that you're passionate about.
8: That's pretty much it, yeah.
6: And now you'd have to pay a minimum of $500, plus, I guess it would start at .08 of a cent and, and rise to point nineteen of a cent by 2010 for every song you play
8: for every time one person hears one song. Yes.
6: Have have you done any math on what that could potentially cost you?
8: Well, for uh, for this year we would owe somewhere in the neighborhood of half a
6: million dollars for going to your basement and playing music. Yeah. And how many listeners have you got?
8: Well, during uh, during peak times we have about 12 to 15,000 listeners.
6: Wow.
2: Okay, let's get into your business model here a little bit, Bill. What kind of advertising do you do, and can you give us a sense of what kind of revenue you bring in from that advertising?
8: Uh, well, we don't do any advertising, we're a listener-supported station.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, here's what's coming out in these hearings. You're, you know, Stations like, such as yourself are building a business on the backs of these artists, and in return the artists really aren't getting a big boost in record sales or album sales. It's certainly not reflected in that, they claim. So you're allowed to benefit from their work, but they're not seeing any revenue coming back to them. I mean, how do you respond to something like that?
8: Well, that is the argument that Sound Exchange is putting out there right now, and they've sold a, a small number of artists on that. And that basically is that the reason that we can't pay these fees is because, uh, you know, we're not deriving enough revenue from our operations, not as much as we should be.
6: What is the reality for you, Will Radio well, Paradox? The, the truth,
8: is, is, the truth is, is that there is not a single Internet radio operation of any size, not a, a small small business like ours, not a large corporation like AOL or Yahoo, not a single one that's making enough money to even pay these fees.
6: If this thing, uh, if the appeals do not drag on, if the effect, uh, if the ruling goes into effect next month as it's supposed to, are you off the air, you and your, Rebecca?
8: Yeah. Yeah, we would have to uh, We would have to go off the air or uh, or leave the U.S.
2: So, Bill, what do you think would be a fair... Uh, an equitable uh, solution to this situation, because otherwise it seems like a lot of you guys are going to be going out of business in a few weeks.
8: Well, uh, uh, the the truly fair and equitable situation would be the situation that exists almost everywhere else in the world, which is where broadcasters of all types, uh, over-the-air, Internet, satellite, whatever, pay, uh, pay royalties to the owners of the performance copyright, that are uh, roughly equivalent to the royalties that they pay to the owners, of the music copyright.
6: Thank you, uh, Bill Goldsmith of Radio Paradise. Good luck to uh, you and your wife, Rebecca.
8: Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
6: All right, so where are we at with this
2: issue right now? very complicated issue. Internet broadcasters are in fear of losing their livelihoods in the next few weeks. There's going to be a hearing before the Royalty Board on Monday to determine whether or not this issue is worth bringing up again and uh... reheard there's going to be a formal appeal filed with the u.s. copyright office and it, it appears inevitable that there will be appeals filed with the U.S. District Court as well before these uh,
6: higher rates go into effect in May. Greg, the thing that I can't help thinking about when we talk about this issue is the way uh, digital broadcasting, webcasting is being treated so differently from regular radio. When radio was first coming in, the record companies feared that this new thing called radio would kill recorded music. Why would anyone want to buy recorded music if you could just listen to it on the radio? Here's another new medium nobody understands and yet the first thing we want to do is pretty much drive a stake through its heart
2: well and drive a stake through its heart and drive a stake most uh, prominently through the little guys hearts i think what needs to happen here jim is a revenue structure that allows these smaller guys to at least have a fighting chance. I think there should be a staggered system created, depending on the size of of the particular Internet uh, venture. The guy who is pulling in a whole lot of money, yeah, make him pay the songwriters uh, an equitable rate. But the guy in his basement, don't make him pay the same rate as the guy who's making the buku bucks from the advertising. Let him do his thing and let him flourish the same way that we're letting Clear Channel flourish.
6: Well, obviously one of the music news stories of 2007, and we'll stay on it here on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and it is time to get into our feature. Greg, we've been talking about doing this show forever. We're excited to finally be doing it. The Elephant 6 Recording Company. What was it? Where did it come from? Why is it worth remembering? I think the best way to start it, as uh, as with everything here on Sound Opinions, is with some of the music. Music.
2: you just heard there was a sampling of the three big bands that formed the Elephant Six Collective way back in the mid-90s in a little town called Ruston, Louisiana. Elephant Six was more of an idea than an actual record label at first. The whole idea of these these four childhood friends getting together and making music uh, from the earliest age, running around the grade school parking lot, and then that, that sort of evolving into these bedroom recording sessions with these cheap four-track tape recorders and these crude instruments and almost a minimal musical knowledge, technically speaking, but just ideas that flourished and were inspired by their intensive listening sessions to some of the classic psychedelic
6: rock records of all time. It's an, it's an absolutely great story Greg. We're going to look at three careers this time and several classic albums. You need to own both Neutral Milk Hotel records on Avery Island and In the Airplane Over the Sea you definitely need the first Olivia Tremor Control album, Dusk from Cubist Castle, <laughs> music from an unrealized film script <laughs> and uh, Apples and Stereo uh, I guess is what really got us excited because they've made a lot of good records over the years and now they have finally made a great one so so we talked to robert schneider who is the uh, the founder of apples and stereo the guitarist the vocalist the key songwriter and he also was the recording guy he was the george martin yeah he always you know <laughs> he, he had a career as a band guy but he also wanted to be george martin and record his friends and as you will tell when we chat with robert He's a highly caffeinated, very energetic young man. And you can just see how he got his friends to buy into this crazy idea of, hey, let's all start bands and make records! (laughs) You know, it's wonderful. Absolutely. I
2: can't wait to get to motormouth Robert Schneider. In fact, he's going to be next, coming up next on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And he's going to describe about how all these terrific bands popped up from this little tiny bird in Louisiana.
6: back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Foot in the gutter, foot in the rain, that's the Apples in Stereo with a song called Tidal Wave from, uh, I guess, their first album proper, Fun Trick Noisemaker. Uh, that's one of the key recordings and key bands we're going to talk about when we talk about the Elephant Six Recording Company.
2: Yes, indeed. Robert Schneider, the man who sang, produced, wrote that song, uh, he did everything for this label. And it all started in this little town, much like uh, these... Out-of-the-way incubators, Athens, Georgia, Seattle, Washington. Liverpool, England. Liverpool, England. And then you've got this little town in northern Louisiana, a little college town, a little sleepy college town. How
6: did that happen? Hey, Robert, welcome to Sound Opinions, man. Hey, guys, how are you? We're good, we're good. We've been wanting to do this show for some time, looking at what the Elephant 6 bands were about, where they came from. It's the mid-'90s, right? As far as I gather from my, my map questing of it, Ruston, Louisiana... If it isn't officially the middle of nowhere,
4: it's pretty darn close, right? Like five or six <laughs> yeah. hours outside of New Orleans. Yeah, it's probably like one step over from the middle of nowhere. The middle of nowhere is a, the middle of nowhere is a suburb of Ruston. <laughs> How is it that you guys all came? The, the key bands in Elephant Six, Apples and Stereo,
6: Milk Hotel, and Olivia Tremor Control. What the hell were you all doing in Ruston, Louisiana?
4: There's a university in town. It's sort of a middle-sized university, and it's not a particularly particularly uh, collegey town. It's not like there's like say you know head shops and used bookstores on every corner. It's more. It's a pretty conservative small town. But there is a university, and the university had a uh, a really strong art department. Probably in Louisiana, it was the number one art department. So lots of you're you talking know, about uh, Louisiana
2: Tech uh, University. Yeah, Louisiana right? Tech yeah.
4: University, and so a lot of kids uh, from all over the state, the kind of uh, the outsiders would end up there in the art department or. You you know maybe studying photography or related studies um also it had a really strong radio station a klpi was uh an incredible station in the day for you know from the time that i first started listening to music in say third grade or so. I would listen to it, and it was a, it it pretty much, for me and for all of my friends, and probably everybody else of our age group from Ruston, you know, it was a, it was a really big influence on our kind of mental growth, as well as our musical growth. And, uh, you know, over time, most of my friends worked at the station. Uh, Jeff Mangum was a station manager, I think. Uh, You know, everybody worked there in some capacity. Uh, You know, we used to record there. They had a little studio, and it was just a really good station. And um, I would say that that was probably the unifying kind of Thing, that in the art department now we were all mm. little kids we were little kids then junior high school kids then high school kids we weren't in the university but we were you know we were in the tractor beam of the radio station <laughs>
6: now the, the way I heard it Robert is that you guys even before you were in college uh you know the, the college kids would go home for the summer and you guys as high schoolers would take over the college radio station and you know gee what is this kraut rock shelf let's play this stuff let's play I'm on duel too yep. right? oh, that, that was you, exactly right right and and and, and yeah. Pink for Floyd and, and Pet Sounds and these records. You, you, so you, got, yeah, exactly. you had this great
4: library to discover. And also we had very knowledgeable, extremely cool, uh, super artsy, older kids to guide us, you know, like college kids and stuff. And also uh. we had a... Uh, we th- In the nearby town of Monroe and in Shreveport, both of which are like Monroe, Louisiana is like half an hour from Ruston, and Shreveport's about an hour. Uh, there would be there was some in, there was an independent record store in each town that we would have to drive to go buy records and stuff, and uh, you know it, it it made listening to music and getting your hands on music seem extremely romantic when it's so difficult.
2: It's a fascinating uh, story because um, you know I, I interviewed Jeff Mangum in, in the mid '90s, right around the time of his first album, and he was saying that. He felt that all of you guys were very sheltered, um, and, and the quote he said was, there was, there was no local club to play in or, in or see bands. Music was this weird, otherworldly thing. It was almost magical. It was like this magnet that was drawing us, and in a way, I think it was a way of escaping what Jeff saw as a very sort of mundane existence in this, in this small, nowhere town. So creating this record was like another world.
4: Yeah, it, it it really it really was like another world. We from the from our earliest, I mean, you know, f- say 5th grade or so is when we started getting uh interested in playing music. I think Jeff took up drums in 6th grade and I took up guitar. It was pretty cool. So, you know, we were like, hey, you you know, you you're, you're playing drums, I'm playing guitar. We would kind of talk about music and hang out a lot and uh as we got into junior high, we started recording and writing songs and kind of trading tapes and stuff. I mean, to call them songs is to over-glamorize them. They were sort of Flatulations or something, you know. They were, you know, <laughs> but like they were, they were, they were amusing, and they had some small degree of production quality that we that would impre- we would impress each other with, you know. Like, whoa, you have drums and guitar. <laughs> so, like,
6: <laughs> well, let's uh, let's focus on this, Robert, because it starts to get complicated. Although the story starts to get good, your friend Jeff Mangum that you were talking about, he uh, becomes the key man in a band called Neutral Milk Hotel. Your
4: Actually, group- he had that he had that band from high school. He he his solo recordings were always called Neutral Milk Hotel ever since we were kids. Okay, that was his group.
6: You uh, are, are Apples in Stereo uh, is the band that you wound up forming, right. right? And then yes. uh, two two Bills, William Cullen Hart and Bill Doss started this band called Olivia Tremor Control. Now, I think these are the key bands in what would become the Elephant Six uh, uh, company, although they were a lot of people, all, basically all your friends. You all decided, we're going to make these uh, recordings. We, we got this Fostex, uh, you know, four track here, <laughs> whatever, you know, kids, for, for those of you who don't know, before digital, you had to buy this cassette deck that enabled you to record four tracks. If you really had a fancy one, you could do eight.
4: It was the most magical device. Before I owned one, I, I, I spent my life savings and bought a Fostex 4-Track when I was 15. But before that, I used to have dreams, like really, really, <laughs> li- really strong dreams that I would like wander into a pawn shop and I'd find a 4-Track for $5 or something that was affordable on my allowance. And like, you know, these were like wonderful dreams. I still have that dream. Sometimes, even now, and I'm <laughs> about to turn 30, I'm turning 36 this week. Like, even now, I'll go and like, uh, I still have the dream sometimes that I walk into a pawn shop and I find this, you know, this 80s era Fostex 4-track for five bucks. Well, when you love
6: the kind of music that you guys loved, you know, Pink Floyd's Piper at the Gates of Dawn or the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds or the Beatles' Revolver, when you think that these were recorded in 4-track studios that in 67 or so were the state of the art and now, you know, for a
4: couple of hundred bucks I can buy a cassette deck that, would enable me to do that in my garage. Amazing! I did not know. I honestly did not know that the Beatles had fancier equipment than a Fostex four-track. I knew they used a four-track. <laughs> I am, I envisioned them sitting in Abbey Road with a tiny little you know Fostex four-track recording, yeah. and I assumed that I could do just as well as a producer as George Martin. I started <laughs> recording. Yeah. I bought the four-track. I would record my friends. I recorded my own music. It was really up until I got an eight-track when we were doing the first Apple's record, Trick Noisemaker, that I realized that the Beatles had more than just four tracks. They also had. It was a court. You know. One inch tape machine and uh you know this this gigantic studio full of tube compressors and stuff and yeah uh, yeah and they
6: could call the orchestra in Robert you know they... <laughs> yeah, yeah
4: yeah 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 I I can call an orchestra in too it's just it, it was on my Casio keyboard yeah there you go
6: <laughs> so, well well so, so so what what became uh everybody doing these uh, four track tapes in the garage or the basement right or or the studio Or are often there.
4: boombox while we were in high school boombox. and stuff a lot of our stuff was recorded uh we had figured out how to multi track with a boombox mm. it was probably my first musical accomplishment was that I had a two a two uh, a boombox that had two cassettes in it. So you could, like, record on one cassette, then play it back and record on the other cassette while the music was p- coming out of the speakers. Ah. And uh, you could multitrack that way. So that was how we started recording. And we made lots of great psychedelic recordings, uh, you know, using boomboxes up until, you know, I think I think the last time I used a boombox to multitrack was uh, when I was about 23. So, like, it was a method that I used well into, you know, us having started Elephant 6. Uh, you can get You can get some good stuff. Well, and that's where the name came from, right? Any tape that you guys made, you would mark as... Uh, as Elephant Six, well, actually, we were we decided that we needed to start a label. We had the sound. We we, we had the sound, and we figured that there might be. 10 to 40 people in the country that would be interested. So we decided that we were going to put out seven inches and cassette tapes, and we were trying to get everybody on board, all of our friends and everybody that we might meet of those 40 people around the country that were obsessed with the Beach Boys. It turns out there were more than 40 people. But <laughs> um, from my perspective, I was listening to my friend's music, and it was brilliant. My own music, I, I had great ambition about uh, w- w- without making any quality judgment on it, you know. And so we decided that we were going to start a label, so to speak. Um, I said to my friend Will, that's W. Cullen Hart, I said, Will, uh, le- we're going to have a label what are we going to call it and he just off the top of his head as soon as the words left my mouth he said Elephant Six Will is very psychedelic he's a surrealist he is a surrealist by like religious faith this is the man you know now, now
6: William was one of the, the two key guys in Olivia Tremor Control this is the only group in in, in my mind in history that debuted with a triple album a debut triple album
4: yeah I think that that's probably true plus a bonus EP right <laughs> yep that's right they had quite a lot of music on there I, I was very proud of that record
5: I should discorporate trying to illuminate the lines of my time. Please tell the here and now, present the case somehow and open up that.
2: It seemed, though, that uh, Robert, that Elephant Six was kind of more of an idea than an actual record label. I, I remember talking to you b- back then that you corrected me. It's really not a record
4: label, but it was sort of an umbrella term, right? Right, exactly. It was a record label in that we would put out our own music, and after about six months of us having Elephant Six, all of our bands got signed. And so we kept Elephant Six, but it became it went from being basically us selling cassettes and seven inches out of our basement apartment into uh, all having labels that wanted to put out our records. So we at that point, Elephant Six became a kind of like a, it was like a society, you know, <laughs> or something. And it was a society that was like by invitation only.
2: A society of outsiders. I think it's really important to notice this, Robert, because you're, you're talking about the mid 90s here. And what you guys were doing, home recording on this very crude equipment. Uh, making these incredibly elaborate songs. You were packing every idea you ever had into these three-minute songs, or you were creating these multi-part songs, these elaborate suites. And there was nothing else. I mean, think about what was going on at the time elsewhere in, in the commercial culture at the time. You had sort of like the you know the death throes of grunge. You know, Nirvana was fading out. The Smashing Pumpkins were huge. We were transitioning <laughs> over into the Creed Corn era. Hip-hop was hitting its most commercial phase. And you guys were doing this kind of very elaborate, um, music on a shoestring budget in the middle of nowhere and you were getting signed to record deals. I mean, w- how
4: did that happen? If we could have taken down every single one of those bands you mentioned and never have heard another note from them, destroyed their guitars and made sure that they would never <laughs> play another note, we would have. But all we could do was pull out our four tracks and try to make some really great psychedelic pop music that, you know, we just wanted to make something that meant something. We wanted to make, we wanted you to go buy this record and have it practically like explode into your lap full of like posters and stickers and these great songs and all of this stuff. You know, we like imagine that like you know, when you buy a record it would be like you'd open it up into like this tropical garden, you know, and like, uh, I mean, when we started Elephant 6, we were at war. We put out a uh, we put out a mission statement that was basically, you know, saying what we believed in, and we were trying to, I mean, we were at war with everything. We were at war with punk rock. We were at war with, you know, the top 40, we were at war with the past. We were like, you know, we were like, it was a very loving war. It's the kind of war where you want to convert everybody to your side, you know, not like just get rid of them, you know, if I could have made love Smashing, war. <laughs> I mean, and in fact, I was going to say if I could have made Smashing Pumpkins turn into a uh, pop band. But maybe we did you know so like it's like you know it was a it was a war that like you know it, 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 it's a little bit at a time and yeah it's a, it a love war like you said
2: you're listening to a little bit of marking time from the olivia tremor control they're a fantastic Mind-blowing uh, debut <laughs> album. Uh, double CD, by the way, Jim, uh, Duskett Cubist Castle. The Olivias were the trippiest, I think, of the big three out of Ruston, Louisiana. I think Schneider was sort of the, the pop craftsman, the tunesmith, the, uh, the guy who loved that pristine studio sound. And you had Jeff Mangum, who we're going to be talking about in a minute here, uh, the Neutral Milk Hotel founder, who was kind of the soul child, uh, the wild card, the guy who loved mistakes and turned accidents into great recordings. And then you had the Olivias, who were just pure out-and-out, trippy psychedelia, they were the ones who looked under the rock wow there's a world underneath that rock let me write an entire album about
6: that well the subtitle of of that debut album uh, Dusk at Cubist Castle is music from an unrealized film script (laughs) I think Robert touched on this briefly but you know it wasn't enough to just make a debut double album we had to have had soundtrack music that was crafted for this film that doesn't really exist that never got made and that nobody even (laughs) described but look they wanted to take you is the classic psychedelic goal we want to create a world that exists only in the space between your headphones. We're going to take you there. We're going to transport you. A lot of it was about the studio. But Greg, I don't know how many of these uh, bands you got to see live because what you basically have was a bunch of hippies, but they were indie rock, punk rock kind of kids. So they would think nothing of piling 13, 14 people in a van, okay, right. and driving for hours and hours and hours. In 96 or 97, I went to a uh, a festival out in Rhode Island called the Ptolemaic Terrascope, it was called Terrastock, and I remember the Olivias pulling up, and it was like one of those cartoon clown cars, where <laughs> kids just kept coming out of this van, and they're carrying flugelhorns, and they're carrying, you know, timpani, and there's like 16 or 19 people on stage, I know, and I didn't even realize it at the time, but it was basically, you know, Schneider is there, and the apples are there, and you know, there's Mangum, he's playing a snare drum, and they would all play with each other all the time, and as they spread out from Ruston across the country, you know, some of them were living in Brooklyn, some of them living in Athens, Georgia, and Schneider and, and Hillary uh, Sydney, the drummer in Apples who was his wife at the time. they go up to Denver. They would all stay on each other's floors. And basically, whenever the Apples came to any city, it was guaranteed they had about seven or eight friends who lived there who'd wind up on stage. Yeah. And they were traveling with seven or eight people. And so it was always this wild kind of thing. They were as good live as they were
2: on record. It was a romper room kind of vibe. Uh, I did see all these bands live at the time. and And you'd have guys on stage and gals who would be playing six or seven instruments during the course of a single song sometimes. Yes. Just switching off instruments, picking up an instrument, adding another layer to the song. The Olivia Tremor Control tried to capture some of that vibe on their records. Uh, They made the densest records of anyone else on Elephant 6. On these little tape recorders, they would just multitrack and multitrack and multitrack and bounce it down and multitrack some more so that you'd have these threads of sound, these seas, rivers of sound running through the recordings. You'd have backward tape loops, you'd have a horn, you'd have a guitar, you'd have a bass piled on top of that, you'd have some timpani going on, you'd have a tambourine playing off in the left-hand channel. Layering all these instruments and creating these trippy, mind-experimenting records that uh, at the same time preserved the integrity of the song they loved melodies these beautiful melodies inside these really elaborate orchestrations and they were doing it on this shoestring budget there was no well, money
6: involved at I, all. I think it was better for olivia on the first record although their second record definitely has moments it was called black foliage it followed dusky cuba's castle they didn't last much longer than that the band split up uh, not long after that second album came out although there's always uh, you know rumors that they're getting back together and, and they still play at different times with apples these guys are will never be done with each other. They'll be 90 years old and they'll all still be playing in each other's bands. <laughs>
2: As we go to break, let's uh, listen to a little bit of that second Olivia Tremor Control record, Black Foliage, a song called Hideaway. Coming up next on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio, American Public Media, the other two key bands from this collective under the microscope, the long-dormant Neutral Milk Hotel and the still-vibrant Apples and Stereo.
6: listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.
2: of carrot flowers part one from what is widely considered the masterpiece from the elephant six stable of bands neutral milk hotels in the airplane over the sea from 1998 you can see why that album i think has a certain long lasting appeal of all the elephant six guys mangum went for that stripped down more of a stripped down sound i'm not going to say it was naked but he certainly no, we are talking about... was about soul, about yeah. I am sitting down here and I'm pouring my guts out and I'm singing, you know, these songs about Anne Frank from the <laughs> 1940s and they mean something to me today. And he would argue with Schneider about this stuff. You know, Schneider wanted a more pristine,
6: more beautiful sound. And Mangum goes, I want those mistakes in there. Well, yeah, but we are still talking about an album that has flugelhorn all over it. Sure. And uh, Mangum was playing the uh, singing saw and and doing all this psychedelic stuff. But you're right, Greg. What in his case was the key was the vocal and the acoustic guitar and all this other stuff decorated it. I think because he was singing straight from the gut, he uh, related to people in a very deep and lasting way that I've only ever seen in my lifetime uh, with Kurt Cobain. And it's interesting. You and I have both had this experience. We've talked about it where we go to talk to college classes and kids who are, are asking about about our job will come up to us afterwards and said, you know, you interviewed Kurt Cobain with this like tone of hushed reverence. I once had a girl want to shake my hand because I had once shaken Kurt Cobain's <laughs> hand. And it's insane. The only other artist I ever get that with from a younger generation is Jeff Mangum. I mean, you interviewed Jeff Mangum? Mm-hmm. And there is this cult that surrounds him. And uh, I think it's just because he he touched people very, very, very deeply. We talked to Robert Schneider
4: about, about why and some of the reasons why and uh, how this record was made. He is a, a really great songwriter and he's a very soulful person and a very, uh, you know, he's a very endearing person and he, des- you know, he deserves to be uh, held in at least as high uh, esteem as Kurt Cobain.
6: Well, my two questions to you as, as someone who worked on those records and has been friends uh, for life, you know, you guys have known him since grammar school, uh, are, yeah. are twofold. You know, the, the legend has it that like Sid Barrett, like Rocky Erickson, Jeff uh, had some sort of a disconnect with reality and has disappeared, has not made music since uh, In the Airplane Over the Sea, and just poof, is gone, you know, like a shadow, a ghost. This is a myth. That permeates rock history And we love it We love to talk (laughs) about Sid Barrett and Brian Wilson In the sandbox Uh, So I I want you to talk (laughs) about that But also did you have a sense When you were making In the Airplane Over the Sea That this was a very Very special record
4: Oh yeah I mean when Jeff came to Denver to make that record, he wanted to do something really special, and I promised him I knew that he would leave the studio with a perfect record, exactly what he wanted. He has a very peculiar vision, and I'm his best friend. I, my vision was took back seat. I wanted to make him happy, and I wanted him to to have something that he would be proud of, and that was you know true to his kind of you know his his inner feelings and stuff. Um, yeah, I mean it was a very special time. We had millions of friends coming through town, and anyway, outside of just recording the album, it was a special time in our lives. We were starting to make records, we were starting to tour, we were being very creative. Elephant Six, you know, we were trading music all the time and constantly challenging each other. It wasn't just that album; it was the the the, the time. You know, it was that time of kind of youthful explosion, and it was it was a wonderful time. And it you know still we feel that. Mm-hmm. But at the time we were all together, living together in the same closet or whatever. You know, like there, <laughs> you know, I'd have seventy five people sleeping in my studio or whatever. You know, it was a fun time, like the way that say like, college is a fun time, except for that we all dropped out of college, you know, yeah, and so yeah. like, it was, you know, and, and, and like, um, um, I knew we were making a special record. At that time, every record that, that, that we made was magic, and I still listen to them and I hear magic, and there was no effort. The effort was making it good enough, making it great, you know, like, we would every day go to the studio, and, and I would be like, Jeff, I'd wake him up in the morning and be like, we're making a classic album. Do you know that your, your <laughs> record is a classic album? And he'd be like, you, you mean it, Robert? It's, you think so? And I'd be like, dude, you know, just let's go, and get, let's go get back to work on it. And he'd jump out of bed, and, you know, we kind of wandered to the studio. <laughs> and, like, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a very special time. And, uh, you know, it was, like, was kind of like summer camp extended over our 20s.
0: And one day we will die and our ashes will fly From the aeroplane over the sea But for now we are young, let us lay in the sun and
6: What about the mythologizing of of Jeff uh, in the years since that record came out?
4: Okay, well, I'll say for one thing, he never fell out of touch with reality. He's more in touch with rea- reality now than ever and with, you know, than most people. Um, uh, that's all I'm going to say. I don't want to touch the mythology because I'm not that close to it. He's my friend. I see him all the time. Uh, he, I'm not going to say anything else, actually, because I want to leave that as an open topic.
6: Well, like, there you go. Just the fact that you see him I just all
4: the don't time. know. I don't know how to comment on he's, it. You know? he's like, around, I don't, I don't I, know what guess to say.
2: what people are saying, he made this uh, masterpiece of what a lot of people consider one of the great records of the 90s, and and that's it. Never heard from again in terms of a musical kind of uh, follow-up. It's it's kind of like the My Bloody Valentine thing. You you make this amazing record that everybody talks about, and where's the follow-up? And as the years go by, there's all these stories start to accumulate about Jeff. You know,
4: is he is he becoming Sid Barrett? From the outside, Sid Barrett appears to be what we think that he was, but from the inside, who knows what he was like, yeah. you know? You know, all we know, basically, is how he was interpreted through Pink Floyd albums subsequently, <laughs> and so, like, uh, you know, and so, and so like, it's hard to, you know, uh, I, I, but but one thing is that, you know, in the case of Sid Barrett and Brian Wilson, these are people who have basically nervous breakdowns, and, and Jeff, you know, Jeff... Jeff has not had a nervous breakdown he is a he's somebody who is passionately on a quest of self-discovery and of kind of understanding of the universe and I understand because I'm like that too in fact all of my friends from Rustin are like that and many of my friends you know it, it, it's sort of a common theme in our social circle to be on a quest of discovery but he's on a quest of self-discovery and making music were sort of the first steps of that i can't say that he's moved beyond that or that that's going to be on the path again he wasn't trying to be a rock star he wasn't trying to make a living he was trying to find out about himself and about the universe and he was he's a very sweet a gentle and extremely creative person and um you know he's he's somebody whose thoughts one would think the content of his thoughts are similar to the content of most of our dreams do you think we'll ever see
2: any more music from him
4: um i I don't want to say (laughs) <laughs> I can't say. What I'll say is that all of my friends still make music together. And, so, you know, in, yeah. in some cases, uh, many many of them are below the radar compared to where they used to be. Or, you know, maybe me too. Who knows? Yeah. And, you know, some of them are way below the radar compared to where they used to be. And, like, uh, you know, not specifically, Jeff, but just in general, uh, everybody still loves being together, making music, and being creative and stuff. Everybody's not necessarily interested in pursuing that as a career anymore. If you could say we ever pursued it as a career. You know, there was a sort of, like, uh... Like I said, Jeff's my friend. To me, he's just that guy. I don't see him as this mythological character. I see him as an extremely sweet friend of mine that I love, and he's very talented, and he's an artist, and he's a writer, and he does all sorts of talented things that he's always done, and music was always just one of them.
6: Greg, that's a song called Sundial Song from the new album from Apples in Stereo called New Magnetic Wonder. It's uh, one of two songs that Hillary Sidney, who was the longtime drummer, former wife of Robert Schneider, one of the two songs she wrote and sings on on the new record. And actually, Jeff Mangum of Neutral Milk Hotel is playing drums on that track. Kind of an Elephant Six reunion effort, this new Apples in Stereo record, in that the two guys from Olivia Tremor Control are on the album. Obviously, Schneider is. It's his band. And, uh, you know, along comes Mangum to do hand claps, backing vocals, drums, and something called Cow Object, which I think <laughs> may be the weird buzzing in the chorus of that uh, song. Apples in Stereo had taken a break of about five years, and Schneider was playing in several other bands. Obviously, he's an energetic guy. He always has 10 things going on. Now he decided to take a break. In that time, Elijah Wood, better known as Frodo from Lord of the Rings (laughs) is a huge Apples and Stereo fan and he came to them and said I want to start an indie label just put out your recording the record was already being made Schneider was taking his time linking up with different people from elephant 6 inviting them to come on this record and uh, Frodo paid for the record which then comes out through the yep rock label let's hear a a song from it and then give our our thoughts on it Uh, the the latest thing that elephant 6 has given us Schneider says that it's the first recording in a long time that has been branded as elephant 6 but it won't be the last. He's hinting that there will be more stuff coming from all of these bands. We're going to play a track called Radiation. Here it is the Apples in Stereo New Magnetic Wonder.
9: Too much radio-
2: Uh, radiation from the new Apples and Stereo record New Magnetic Wonder And Jim, I think that's kind of the manifesto of that record you got to get back into that place that you can believe in That place with your friends That place that makes you feel good And that's exactly what uh, Schneider's doing on this record By far the best record that uh, Robert Schneider and Apples and Stereo have ever made I think it ranks right up there With the very best of the Elephant Six Collective, back in the heyday of Dusk at Cubist Castle and in the airplane over the sea, I think you can slot New Magnetic Wonder right in that pantheon and say, these guys are back and they are as good as they've ever been. Uh, Schneider has really raised the level of his game. I think he's the most underrated member of that whole collective. In a lot of ways, he was the behind-the-scenes guy, the producer, the yeah. guy who did everything behind the scenes. You know, the four-eyed geek, you know, back there in the control the 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 room, room. I mean, you he know? was
6: bald, I think, at age 20, <laughs> you know, and now he's made his masterpiece, yeah. and, and it's kind of interesting that it took him this long to do it, although there's no such thing as a bad Elephant Six recording. Uh, you know, they all have their moments, especially from these three key bands, and we should say here that There are many other groups that have subsequently taken that Elephant 6 logo. Some of them, you know, were friends and played in the other bands. Uh, You know, you have stuff like the Music Tapes and the Minders and the Gerbils and Elf Power and Chocolate USA, and the (laughs) list goes on and on and on. Wikipedia actually has a list. I think they list like 20 or 30 different bands. Mm -hmm. Some of them, the returns start to become kind of diminishing, uh, but they're all worthy of further investigation if you want to go out there. On the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, however, of must own records. Clearly, you need those two uh, Neutral Milk Hotel records. You need those two Olivia Tremor records. And, boy, you need to rush out and buy right away New Magnetic Wonder by Apples and Stereo because it's a great record. It, It really is. 24 tunes crammed into 53 minutes, very
2: detailed. It seems to build. It's one of those records that actually increases in depth. And ambition as it goes along. And I love the sequencing of the record. It starts out kind of exuberant and poppy, and you go, yeah. well, I've heard that apples before. And he just picks up the level of his game. It really is a true album and emphatically a, uh, a double buy it from both Jim and I. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, we have Nico Case, one of the great singing voices of our time, Jim. I make no
6: bones about it. She's going to be in the studio for a live performance and a conversation. Sound Opinions is produced by Todd Bachman, Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. We get some legal assistance from Dino Armiros. We appreciate the efforts of the fine folks in American Public Media. And Tori Southside-Malatia, as always, is our executive producer. And rumored to have been the kazoo player on several of those Elephant 6 uh, albums, but I've never nailed that down. He is indeed the king of carrot flowers, too.
2: On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline. 1-888-859-1800. Your
7: call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system.
3: At the tone, please record your message. Oh,
1: oh, oh. Hi, this is Josh Kurtz from Des Illinois. This is my sound opinion. I wish to heartily thank you for your retrospective on the Ramones a few weeks ago. I thought you might like to know that I found the Ramones have become a critical parenting tool for me. Some years ago, I discovered that I want to be sedated, the most effective lullaby when sung appropriately. So
10: here goes it. 20, 20, 24
1: hours to go. Well, you get the idea. figured that not only does it convey the proper soporific message, uh, newborns could also identify with uh, not being able to control their fingers and toes. Uh, they also have nowhere to go. Uh, my younger daughter, Rose, who just turned four, sings it by herself now. Uh, I look forward to your continuing podcast. Thanks for being a beacon of excellence in the RF spectrum.
10: wondering why there are more male DJs than female DJs and why women aren't as committed and excited about music as men are
0: I know what they like, like I
9: know what boys like I know
10: what girls want I
9: know what guys
10: want A great example of this was I was talking to my boyfriend about the battle days when you would camp out for tickets It got me to thinking I never camped out for tickets I let my boyfriend Boys like, boys like me Now I'm the mother of two teenage girls, and I see my oldest going to concerts like Red Hot Chili Peppers, The Who, Richard Thompson, and I'm happy to see this depth of taste, but I realize it's because of her boyfriend. She's a musician, and he's obsessed with me. Otherwise, she wouldn't be going to these concerts. Why is that? Anyway, that's my opinion. Boys like me
8: Hey Jim and Greg, my name is Rain from Chicago Land, and uh, I was just listening to your show on South by Southwest, and I thought I'd call in and let you know that I agree with the guy from the band Hella. Um, it seems like South by Southwest has kind of lost its focus and has kind of turned into like a you know hyperactive spring break. Whereas you know South by Southwest used to be about
1: finding new music and new acts getting signed and.
8: Now it just seems that South by Southwest has become a venue for people to say, hey, my band's cool. I played South by Southwest. And they don't.
1: a lot of 90% of the bands that play now are signed already. What's the point?
8: Hi, my name is Josh. And I'm from Syracuse, New York. And I was actually on a road trip here driving down into Raleigh, North Carolina. And I heard your coverage of the South by Southwest your take on what the scene was in regards to how the media is changing now with CDs sort of on their way out, or seemingly so, and how it's, it's coming really down at this point to getting that booking agent and, and getting yourself out there and how, how you can make a living now. The money generator for a band at this point is playing live again, which is really a cycle, isn't it? It's gone back. Having played South by Southwest myself once before, having been out there a couple times in a row, I think that your opinions on what the place is about were dead on. And it was very entertaining, actually. It was very entertaining to listen to you guys vicariously sort of checking it out. There's my commentary on your commentary. Peace.
10: No more messages.
6: To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.